Hey pals, how have you been? How has your week been? Although when you're listening to this, your week is probably only just starting or maybe you halfway. If that's the case, I hope it's going well. I am finally catching up a little bit with these episodes, which means that there's not much delay between recording and posting of them. So you can, I can tell you about my week and you will not feel like it happened last winter or seven years ago, you know? Something some progress is happening. I wanted also in the beginning to say thank you to those of you near and far, including long lost friends. Thank you so much for writing to me and for reaching out. It's really wonderful to hear from you and to know that you are somewhere out there and we can be thinking about each other. And thank you so much for listening to this. So speaking of weeks, my 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 past week has been all right with a pinch of terrible. And this is because it was sponsored by two things. First thing were various encounters with estate agents as I'm trying and failing to find somewhere to live in London. And the second thing was a failed attempt number five or six at extracting a tooth. <laughs> I'm not trying to do it by myself, although I'm, I'm getting quite close in my desperation. I have a dental surgeon to do it for me, but we somehow are unable to get that job done. And I'm getting braces, so this is the last bit of the puzzle. But it just feels like it's going on and on forever. It's this dodgy tooth that needs to be evicted from my mouth, but somehow we can't get it done. And unfortunately, I have a dental phobia. I really fear dentists, which logically makes no sense. I've never had a massive dental trauma. A dentist never punched me in the face before. And and okay, look, no one, I don't think, loves dental visits. Unless maybe you you have the world's most perfect teeth and never had a cavity in your life. But even that, it must be a little bit stressful to be sitting on that chair, no? Um, anyway, I have this phobia, and here I am with it, and it's the second time, that there were five or six attempts, but it's the second time I actually even made it to the chair. I sat on the chair, and this time the dentist said, look, I'm not feeling well, I'm not going to do it. And I thought, oh my God, three hours of stress for this. And of course, I feel really sad for her. I hope she gets better soon and actually gets my freaking tooth out. But um, it it feels a little bit like this dark tooth-shaped cloud is hanging above my head, <laughs> ready to explode and eradicate me. That's how strong that phobia is. The fear is real. And actually... This, uh, through this, I concluded what my definition of hell is. If you ever came across or will come across or just want to go and have a look at it, uh, Dante Alighieri's Divine Comedy, he designed or imagined various circles of hell. It's very interesting whom he places where in hell. And I imagine there's a special place there for me and it is in the shape of a waiting room of a dentist. And my hell is being there, forever stuck in the five minutes before an appointment zone with a drill in the background. You know, the dental drill, not the drill music. Forever. 
this is my hell. And then an estate agent comes in and tells me, you live here now. And the drill goes, actually, this is a very realistic um, thought about what hell is, because the dental waiting room is probably all I can afford in London at, at this rate anyway. So tooth saga to be continued. I'll keep you posted or not if it's too much. So in addition to my tooth related <laughs> dramas, I also had an eye test last week and that eye test actually inspired this episode. My last episode was quite serious, I thought. So today we are back to bizarre and ridiculous. Welcome. So the eye test, I went because I stopped recognizing people on the street, literally, and I knew it was time. In any case, I am usually quite good at attending this test regularly because my eyesight is excellent at deteriorating. So I go in, the optometrist is really lovely, really chatty, and I love a chatty health professional. So they tell you things. So, you know, I sit down and she looks me deep in the eye, eyes, like looks me deep in the eyes and says, I love you. Obviously, no, she doesn't. I'm joking. But she says this. Oh, you have a bit of a squint. Like she actually whispers it to me. It's like, it feels like she's saying, oh, sorry, you have a bit of a chlamydia. And then she says, oh, but don't worry. You can only see it if you're looking into your eyes for a really, really long time. Oh, that's fine then, you know, no romantic candlelit dinners for me or my romantic interests shall flee beyond seven mountains when they notice my squint. What is that about? I'm sure she meant well, so I didn't say anything because she was so lovely, but it is a bit weird, right? I really don't care unless it stops my eyes from functioning. And anyway, this was not a shocking news to me because I know of and about my squint very well. I am deeply, deeply familiar because when I was a child, I had squint from here to Montreal and back. And I don't remember this, but my mother told me that she consulted various eye surgeons who said the only way to correct it was through surgery. And at the same time, I had the biggest thickest glasses you could find since I was a toddler, like a really tiny toddler as well. And the legacy of these glasses, I'll I'll show you a photo on my Instagram. The legacy of these glasses lives forever and it lives in my ear because my ear sticks out, still sticks out due to the heavy glass burden of my early years. And I actually, when I was a kid, it got so bad. I was, I, I just thought I had to do something about it. So I conducted a plastic surgery on myself by sticking my ear to the rest of my head with an industrial glue, which did not end well, but I looked really, really good. So anyway, I was there as a kid with a squint and glasses that made me look like I was an 80 years old retired librarian in a body of a toddler. (laughs) So Poland at that time 
This is crucial information. Poland at that time was swept, and I mean swept, by the fame of a man called Anatoly Kaspirovsky. Anatoly Kaspirovsky was uh, the, I would say, mega influencer of the early 90s. His Wikipedia page, which is a very tiny, very modest entry, considering his fame back in the day, tells us that Kaspirovsky is a Russian psychotherapist of Ukrainian origin, claimed to be a hypnotist and psychic healer. He worked as a psychiatrist for 25 years, and then he became famous in 1989 after several of his sessions with patients were shown on Soviet television. He was shown to remove the pain of two patients who remained conscious during abdominal surgery, and he did this by addressing them by teleconferencing. The first session was shown on 9 October 89 on the central channel of the USSR. The Wikipedia ends its entry by saying that in 1993 he was elected to be a deputy of the Russian Duma. That's it. That's Wikipedia. He also has a profile on Facebook and that has 131 likes, as well as an Instagram page with slightly more followers, 16,600 followers, and he's following 42 people. Why does this random man make it to my podcast? Well, he was a big part of my childhood, a big part of my growing up. And I did not grow up in a cult, but my mother made me watch his sessions a lot. And I mean a lot. And she claims that he cured my squint. I mean, well, maybe not quite cured it, because if you look really deeply into my eyes, it's still there. But, you know, let's say 90% of it was gone which is a really good result for tv healing yes and i remember life completely stopping when his sessions were on tv everyone in the village would sit in front of tv and watch him and i thought okay maybe this was because we live in a really small village in the middle of nowhere but now various people talk about that time in big cities like Warsaw. And they say when it was televised, the city was completely empty. And all you could see was that blue light from TVs in all flats and houses. I have read a little bit more about him in Polish sources, because I'm actually quite interested to see how other Poles perceived him at the time and perceive him now, you know, years and years later. So according to these sources, overall, throughout years, 60% people... 60%, 60%, imagine 60% of all people in Poland watched his shows. There was also some research done into his actual ability to cure um, ailments. And it found that we were talking about 3% of all people that watch his show. This is nothing. I think this is actually less than what you would expect of a placebo effect. But again, this is 3% of a very large number. What I actually find really interesting about him is that he never discouraged people from traditional medicine. In fact, he went on to criticize homeopathy. He criticized charlatans. He criticized healers without credentials. And, you know, on the other hand, there have been claims that some of his sessions 
resulted in people suffering from psychosis. It's fascinating, so interesting. So in terms of his sessions, he would start by telling a little story, a kind of story that encourages you to look into yourself and to be good, kind, brave and decent. I think this is a little bit like a very early form of coaching, almost. Back then, I did not understand much of what he was saying. But I remember very clearly, and he would then say, Adin, dva, tri. This is him counting to three. And now, now I know, again, now I know, but back then I didn't know what went after Adin, dva, tri. But he's saying something about leading people through a dark tunnel to a light. And then he's counting a little bit more and then he's doing the healing. I remember him being so prominent in Poland. That hour with him was, you know, you have to go and sit and listen unless you're having a heart attack and you need to go to the hospital. But also you'll probably wait for 10 minutes with that heart attack going on before you go on the off chance that he can cure you. And I have no memory at all of what happened to my squint. And when it got better, because it did get better, I don't know what how it occurred. And so I cannot find an alternative explanation to this miracle. I'm putting it in quotation marks. But I for sure will never forget Kaspirovsky the healer. He's Adin, Dva, Tri. He's so ingrained in my brain that the moment I say it, I see his face. <laughs> and I'll always remember him whenever a random optometrist tells me about my squint. I think you should go and, and Google him and see his photo. It's, it's really uh, fascinating. He, the way he looks now, he really has not changed much from his healing days, from his influencer days. It is quite interesting that um, the Polish press is, I would say, quite favourable to him still, whereas the Western press looks at him very differently. There's an article from 2006 written by Mark Bennett in The Guardian. And Mark Bennett is a word magician. (laughs) To me, he's like a god of writing. He writes so beautifully. So I'll read a little bit of of his entry. The article says this. Psychic healer Anatoly Kaspirovsky once held the entire USSR under his televised spell. But after 15 years in self-imposed exile, following claims that his shows had caused a wave of suicides, he is back and as controversial as ever. Pals, he's back. Maybe he can sort my tooth out. Mark writes this article having gone to one of Kaspirovsky's revival shows. And he says the following. His terse introduction over, Kaspirovsky, who at 70 boasts the appearance and energy of a man two decades younger, launches into an almost hour-long monologue, taking in subjects as diverse as self-programming, Genghis Khan, and unsightly vaginal moles. As fascinating as all of these may be, I can't help feeling that most of the audience would rather he just cut to the chase and laid on the healing touch that once made him the most talked about man in the Soviet Union. 
And I'm going to read a little bit more because it gives an extremely fascinating background to what was happening in the Soviet Union at that time. So here goes. As the Soviet system began to collapse under its own weight in the late 1980s, a widespread underground belief in magic and the paranormal flooded into the mainstream, turning society on its head. The pinnacle of this scramble for new ideas to replace the certainties that Marxism-Leninism had once provided saw the incredible spectacle of extrasensory experiments carried out on state TV, primetime viewing spots devoted to psychic healing sessions. Where once there were screenings of Communist Party congresses and rhythmic gymnastics, now there were men with hypnotic eyes and soothing voices. Oh God, and Kaspirovsky had the most soothing voice, promising to cure the entire country of its ailments. The nation was entranced. Kaspirovsky, who first came to public attention during a televised broadcast of a Kiev healing session in October 1989, was the most famous of these Kremlin-approved psychics. At the height of his celebrity, the former weightlifter and qualified psychiatrist regularly topped polls to find the most popular public figure, easily beating the still sober Boris Yeltsin into second place. His live appearances at venues from Moscow to Vladivostok saw crowds sobbing and writhing to his command, a mass casting out of demons. Soviet style. As I said, Mark went to his revival show and he wrote this beautiful piece. I mean, his writing is just insanely magical, almost as magical as Kaspirovsky's shows. And I will share the link to this article in the, in the episode description. Anyway, I will never forget Anatoly Kaspirovsky. And I find it actually quite endearing that this healing miracle, again in air quotation marks, keeps coming back to me every couple of years whenever I have my eye test. Now, this is not the only unexplained story involving a healer or a person who claims to have some sort of a knowledge of the unknown, the metaphysical, or the future teller, or a fortune teller. And I seem to, I don't want to say attract, because it's not that, these characters, but I... I think I invite them in, sometimes verbally, but sometimes maybe not verbally. I feel these people can smell curiosity. But also, if someone comes to me and says, let me read your palm, I usually say, yes, read both. But one time, literally one time I said no to such suggestion, the weirdest thing happened. This is when I was at university and I was walking to a class for which I was late already. And the rule was that after 15 minutes, the door will close and there was no point going in. The attendance was quite important as we're nearing the exam time. So I was making an effort. It was cold. It was snowy. It was grey. It was really, really unpleasant. Very unpleasant early morning. Okay, by early, I mean nine, but still. So I'm walking towards the building where my class was and I would say I was about five minutes away. All I had to do 
was go down the stairs from the little parky bit, cross the road and walk a minute to the building. So I'm walking there, really grumpy, really cold, really hungry. This one, you know, just me in the morning. (laughs) This woman just appears out of nowhere. And she says to me, oh, let me read your palm. And I tell her no, politely, thank you. And I probably don't say thank you. Um, I'm afraid manners were out of the window. But she had none of it. She was this Romani woman and and I would have seen Romani women in that path, in the past. They would sort of wander around and offer to read your palm. But her face, I could not remember. And I'm a super recognizer, so I never forget a face. Anyway, she's there in front of me, telling me, no, 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 I need to read your palm. She's so determined. And at that point, I am fuming. And I just tell her to get out of my way. And she sees me fierce and she goes all fierce back at me. She grabs my arm and grips it. It's an actual grip of all grips. I freeze. Look, this is happening through layers of clothing and thick coat. I don't understand how. It might just be the shock of someone grabbing your arm without an obvious need for it. Like, I don't know. But I'm frozen there. Well, we've frozen there in this weird embrace. I don't know how long it lasts, but then she lets go. Once she releases me, she says, okay, you can go now. And I do rush away, sort of still in shock. And I take maybe two, three steps towards the steps. And this mini lorry head on collides with a bus on a zebra crossing. I was about to step onto. Whoa. They did not go fast, so nothing really happened to anyone, but they must have one of them must have lost control because it was quite a slippery road. No one got hurt, but these would have been me, or likely would have been me, a marmalade for the bus and lorry sandwich on that crossing. And I turned around to obviously thank this woman for saving my life. And also, I had all the questions about what the F just occurred here. But she was gone. She was nowhere to be found. Of course, I probably stood there for quite a long time in shock. But how long could it have been? You know, she was gone. And I walked around trying to find her. Nowhere to be found. Nowhere to be seen. And I don't think she was a ghost. She probably saw me standing in shock and just walked away. And I was wandering the streets, you know, and looking for her. I, I I, must have walked for hours trying to find her. Nowhere. Poof. Into thin air. So I then went to the nearest open bar and perused some spirit shots to commemorate her spirit. Or... The spirit. Maybe she was a spirit. And to commemorate my spirit that was still in my body rather than haunting people. It is probably the most unexplained, bizarre thing that ever happened to me in my entire life. And I have told this story to many people, many friends, and every time I do, and now included, I have hairs standing on my arms, I have goosebumps. 
Because it makes me think, why? <laughs> Was this a sign? And honestly, whenever I walk past that bit, I get real weird, eerie feeling. And I had an actual bruise around my arm after that. So it's not like it was a completely divine, ghostly intervention. It was a real meat and bones body intervening. Unless goats can bodify themselves. And she intervened with force and fierceness. But why? What did she know? How did she know it? I will die not knowing this. And it's a difficult thing for me to accept a person because I'm a person driven by curiosity. No ambition, not achievements, not money, not people's opinion, no curiosity. And I will never know. Ah, but I live to tell the tale. So when you weigh it all up, it's probably better for me that way. I'm alive. Yay. That's where the title for this episode comes from because the palm reader might have saved my life whilst the palm reader saved my life my love of bread nearly costed me it later in life so this is the last story of this episode to complete the collection of bizarre and unexplained i was working in northern thailand i was living in this small town near the border with myanmar And one evening, me and my friend were talking about sandwiches. And in that town, you know, you can find loads of different foods, but not a sandwich, not a beautiful sandwich, or not back then, uh, at least. But there was a place, not that far, in a town called Pai, that had the most spectacular sandwiches. It was a hotel that served sandwiches. And I am a sandwich queen who is not easily satisfied by sandwich. Sandwiches I make are state-of-the-art. Sandwiches in my family home are state-of-the-art. We make them exciting, interesting, quirky, not just your egg mayo. I mean, if we do egg mayo, there will always be something green and fresh on top and the mayo will be delightful. Look, Polish people can go to war to defend their favourite mayo. And, you know, the bread will be the most delicious sort. And so will the butter. Like my father drives half an hour to get good bread. This is the legacy I'm here to uphold. And, you know, whenever I, I go home and I look into my parents' fridge, there will always be a variety of ingredients for a delicious sandwich. Sandwich is holy. <laughs> and so that place in pie was my sandwich mecca in Northern Thailand. It's Friday night and we thought, okay, we'll just jump on a bike, two hours, and we have a lovely sandwich and we come back the next day. Doable. And so we go. We take one bike between us. My friend will drive us one way and I'll drive us back. He was a very experienced biker. I was an excellent biker, much better, I think, than a driver, but not that good at night. So he was driving us there. And that's because I'm short-sighted and have squints, as we established. Anyway, we set off, we drive, drive, drive. It's lovely, crisp air. We stop to gaze at the stars. We're so happy to be on this trip. You know, I see the, the stars making a sandwich shape in the sky. And then we drive, 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 and we encounter a checkpoint. And these soldiers, or police officers, I think soldiers, just sort of, 
wave us through. And one of them that says, just like looks us in the eyes and says, I love you. No, no, he says, <laughs> I don't know, says, slowly, slowly, you hear me? Slowly, slowly. And look, we are going pretty slowly and we are about to hit a very windy road. So you can't really speed through it. Well, you can, but that will not end well and we know it. And so we're there, driving slowly, 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 driving, driving, da-da-da-da-da. And there's another checkpoint. And I've, I've done this route before, and no way in hell, <laughs> there were so many checkpoints. Anyway, they, we get stopped at this checkpoint, and I sort of feel, well, it's a bit weird. There are too many army men on the road. That is completely dead at night. You know, we pass no cars, no bikes, nothing. It's just us on the road. Like, what's going on? Anyway, we, of course, stop at the checkpoint and the soldier, the officer, just says to us, go slowly, slowly. Just make sure you go slowly, slowly. This is some sort of weird deja vu central. Like, what's happening? It's nine o'clock, you know, and the army men keep telling us to go slowly, even though we are very clearly going well below what I would usually ride. Anyway, we, we get there to that windy road bit, and then my friend just screams and we fall off the bike. I split second. I find myself on the road with the bike squishing me. And then my friend reacts really fast. We get the bike up and he says, I swear something just run in front of my bike and so we look around and there's nothing you know quiet it's so dead quiet so eerie i mean we are in the middle of nowhere of course and so i ask him was it like an animal and he just goes no not like an animal okay okay i said like what then and he goes it was a ghost baby <laughs> and you know at that moment my adrenaline must have gone down and I realized that my leg really hurt and then I look at my knee and it's smashed and there's like blood everywhere and my really nice jeans my favorite jeans I look so good in these jeans are torn so I'm not happy and my friend clocks that situation and the bloody knee situation and we swiftly move from the ghost baby conversation into the need to take me into a hospital but I am really hungry and I need that sandwich you know I have priorities and I still probably do not feel the entirety of pain at that point 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 that will reveal itself later but we are not far from pie and the sandwich and so I wrapped my knee up in an item of clothing I can't remember what it was and we go <laughs> oh my god we go so so slowly and we get to the hotel um, that, that did the sandwiches and I can see in a better light that my knee is in a state you know and we are greeted by this lovely woman and she looks at us. <laughs> she looks at my knee and she goes a bit white, <laughs> like that ghost baby. And my friend just says, double, double shot of vodka, please. And I'm thinking, rude. <laughs> and I sort of shout after her and the sandwich menu as well, please. And then she comes back imminently, really, with the menus and the shot of vodka in a glass. 
a kind of big glass, <laughs> it's half filled with vodka. This is a quadruple shot. And she puts it on the table in front of my friend. And my friend then goes, no, no, this is for you. Just give me a minute. And I can see he's 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 going through something. Um, and so I take it and I down it. <laughs> and he looks at me like I've lost not only the best pair of jeans, but also my sanity. And he says, no, you idiot, this was to disinfect your wound. <laughs> and God help me, I needed that shot to deal with the disinfection pain that came later. And that was administered through a traditional methods of first aid kit, rather than pure ethanol, as we were, which my friend did not realise, in a modern hotel and not on a war front in 1867. My knee is fine. I have a bit of a scar, which will always reminds me about my love for sandwiches. We never talked about the ghost baby again. Did the army know that the ghost baby was on the loose? Who knows? Either way, this was not the first and not the last time my desire for delicious food left me in a sticky situation, but I will leave some of these stories for another time. So to conclude, I was healed by a Soviet TV personality and had my life saved by a Romani ghost palm reader, only to risk it all and nearly meet my maker because of a sandwich. My name is Magda, M-A-G-D-L, and this was my story. There is really nothing more to be said about that, other than if any healers with experiencing teeth are listening, please help me. And on that desperate note, I'll leave you to it. Go make a sandwich. I'll speak to you soon. Go take care of yourselves and each other. Bye.